0: I'm in charge of groups here, so uh, this morning I'll be reading our passage uh, for this morning. We're um, reading out of Mark 13, verses 14 through, I think, 39, um, through the end of the chapter. It's pretty lengthy, so just hunker down and bear with me. Um, and this is the word of the Lord. Um, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come.
1: uh, and for your spirit, uh, who opens our eyes and our hearts to the truth that you have to say to us this morning, we pray that we would, um, that we would understand it in light of your grace, um, and that we would, in response, seek to worship, uh, you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen, amen, happy Sunday, welcome back everyone, um, woo, woo yes. Indeed, um, this morning we are uh, picking up in part two of Mark chapter thirteen. I told asked Haley if she would read for us, and she said, "How much? Right? Like um, we we don't typically uh, we don't typically do sections quite uh, this this large." Uh, but I'll be perfectly honest with you; I really would have loved to have done it in one week because uh, the events and the questions that Jesus uh, poses last week to his disciples uh, they, they can Continue on into what we see this morning, and so um, I'm going to try to uh, spend a little bit of time of setting the 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 stage for us, right, in light of what we saw uh, last week and what we've seen over the past couple of days in terms of the earthly ministry of Jesus as He is living out this final week uh, before uh, He uh, goes to the cross. Um, and, and for us to really begin to understand what Jesus has to say about the end, okay, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about the, the end, right, and what that looks like and, and what it looks like in the context of, of the disciples who are present listening to the words of Jesus. And then um, there's a lot that we can learn about just what it means to be human, right, uh, like what it means to live in a, in a fallen world in light of what we see from Jesus to his disciples' Concerning um, the end. And so, hey, what did Jesus have to say about the end? Part two, that's where we are. Uh, Jesus has, in, in recent weeks, experienced rejection, right? A, a rejection of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, leading up to his final Passover with his disciples and his death. And as Jesus departs the temple, we're reflecting back on what we saw last week, he begins this dialogue concerning the future of the world. And he begins by uh, discussing world events, right? He, he says, essentially, and this is, this is back in part one, last week, verses 1 through 12, that the world is a crazy place. And because that is true, that you can continue to expect much of, much of the same, where we discussed God's work to drastically transform our understanding and perception of that which is beautiful. This is all pertaining to last week, right? And we came to this conclusion that observable and experiential beauty in this world, right, in the midst of, of, of challenging events, are ultimately a reflection of the beauty of Christ crucified for the redemption of his people. This is indeed a post-resurrection perspective. We talked about it last week how how the disciples upon upon making their way out of Jerusalem look back and they observe the beauty of the temple and the structures that surround it. And they say, essentially, man, this is, this is beautiful. Look at this. Like, look at how amazing this is. Look at, look at all these wonderful buildings and just, the, I mean, the Jerusalem skyline, right? Like, as I was thinking about it this past week, I'm thinking about this, uh, this portion of Highway 20 as you head into the city, right? As you head east and you, see, uh, you begin to see the, the buildings cut out of the distance, right, as you head into Atlanta. And you go, man, the city looks really beautiful from here, right? The disciples are looking back, and they're going, man, this is, this is truly beautiful. And Jesus says in response to their statement, hey, like none of these stones are going to be left stacked on top of one another, right? And we said how through that we really see Jesus... Reorienting right our perspective and our understanding of that which is truly beautiful, and how that which is beautiful is ultimately a reflection of the beauty that we see in the crucifixion of our King, right? That that everything that we observe in the world around us and that which we experience, taste, smell, see, touch, is a reflection of the beauty that we see at the cross. That it brings added beauty, that it brings an increased beauty to everything that we see in the world around us when we understand that our king condescended into his own creation in order to give himself as a a sacrifice in order to redeem his people and make a day in which the, the recreation of all things would ultimately be realized, right? And so all of it, all of the beauty in the world that we see around us, in spite of it being a Truly broken place, right? Not existing as it ought to, but because of what we see in Genesis chapter 3 in rebellion, right, is indeed a a, a beautiful place, but it only becomes more beautiful in light of what we understand about Christ's work upon the cross, And we see this encouragement from Jesus to remain committed to sound doctrine, verses 10 and 11 from last week, to lean in to the power of the Spirit, to remain committed to mission as an informed people, aware of the hostility that will persist, and yet confident Confident that because Christ will endure, here it is, Christ endures, right? And because Christ will endure, That they too shall endure. And that because they are to endure, there's this confidence that is produced within us here this morning, today, that we too shall endure. And so what is the message from last week, right? It flows right into the message this week, and it's this. Hang on, right? Like, hang on. Things are going to get crazy, right? He's telling his disciples this in our context, our passage from last week. He continues to unpack it this week, speaking about events that they will observe in their lives that will lead them to go. This must be the end, right? Because things are, are wild. But the encouragement from Christ remains. Hang on, right? Stay awake if we, if we flash forward to the very end. We're going to explore some of these same threads today as we enter part two of what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And so uh, each week, one thing that we like to do is give a 30,000-foot view of what we can expect from our time together. And we want to make that available to you throughout our service so you can consider it, as well as a number of subpoints that we're going to spend some time unpacking. And so what do we have to look forward to this morning while awaiting the return of our King? We must be alert, right? We must be obedient and hopeful due to the certainty of his second advent. As certain as the difficulty that we will, as God's people, experience in this world. As certain as the difficulty that the disciples who are listening to Jesus talk in this scene were to experience the difficulty of this world. There is this hope, right? And it's not, a, it's not a hope. Again, when we talk about hope from a Christian worldview or from a Christian perspective, it's not a hope that leaves us wondering if something is indeed to come to pass, right? But it's an assured hope. And so there is this hope. That we have that encourages us in and through difficulty in this world and in this life due to the certainty of the return of our resurrected King. Does that make sense? This is what we're going to see this morning as we look to the second part of Mark chapter 13. And so, if we even consider from the beginning, what is the intended response? How do we, how will we be called to respond to what we see from God, God's Word this morning? Here's an example. Here's how we respond right now. Let's just put that out there from the very beginning. While we uh, don't know the exact moment of Christ's return, right? his disciples, the original recipients of this gospel, and you and I are to look to and trust in Christ, pursuing obedience and anticipating his return. We pursue obedience out of the hope of the gospel in anticipation for the return of our king. Which leads us to the final the final exhortation, the final call that we see in the Olivet Discourse. From Jesus to his disciples, which is what? What does he say? Stay awake. Right? Stay awake. Remain obedient. Pursue obedience holiness don't be don't be distracted by the things of the world but instead remain fixated right remain focused on on who i am and what i have told you and the security that i provide to you this is what we're going to see this morning three points that i want us to to talk about three observations would probably be a better way to to understand what we're going to be looking at over the course of our next few minutes together. Number one, difficulty in the world will persist. To which you are saying, "Yes, you're telling me nothing that I don't already know, right?" And so this is perhaps an assurance for you that you're not crazy, right? <laughs> Difficulty in the world will persist. That's what Jesus has to say to his disciples here. But there's this encouragement in verses 24 through 27 that Christ will gather his people. That Christ will gather his people. This is connecting back to what we saw last week and this encouragement toward the missional life. Man, we're going to see it again this morning. Difficulty in the world will persist. You're not crazy, but it it is out there, right? Christ will gather his people, and despite some uncertainty, these events are sure, right? There are some unknowns, right? There is a degree of uncertainty just in terms of specific elements that Jesus is talking about and addressing here. But one thing is not uncertain is that he will return, right? And so we just do this, like... This big circle here, right? like we just, we do one and two and three, and then we go back to one, right? And we just do it all over again, right? Thus is the Christian life. And so let us begin by observing the difficulty in the world and its persistence that Jesus has to say here. Jesus is answering a question, and the question that he's answering finds its home in what we saw last week. And so we need to look back for just a moment. We need to ask this question as Jesus begins, but when you see the abomination of desolation, what is he talking about? Well, he's, he's talking about. This question concerning the fall of Jerusalem that the disciples asked to Jesus. Remember, he said, hey, you see all these beautiful stones and like these gates and all its glory and all its shimmer. Hey, I tell you, like it is all crumbling down, right? It's all coming down. And so the question that Jesus is continuing to answer here relates back to that statement. And their question was this. When will the fall of Jerusalem happen? And what, will we, what we will find through Jesus' answer is that we are actually functioning on two planes. Right, we're, we're functioning on two levels. The chaos of the days following the death of Christ, as well as, as we've already acknowledged, the human condition. And so Jesus is going to be talking on two planes here. He's talking about what you will, as my followers, in the context of Mark 13, those who are before him, what you will see. What you will experience, right, which we look forward and we go, he makes this really, uh, you know, perhaps initially strange statement uh, in verse 31, in which he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away just prior to that. He talks about this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so he's functioning on two planes. The first, what you as my followers hear before me. Not here, but here before me will experience. The other plane is this, that the disciples in the context of Mark 13 are experiencing the same human condition that you and I experience. Right? And so that which is true here, we can expect that there will be similar instances in our own day and time. Right? And so it's, it's, hey, your life is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to observe some really wild things that are going to lead you to believe that the world is literally crumbling in on itself and that it's all over. Right? Hold on. It's not. For us, you and I, the human condition is informed the exact same way. Right? That we see things that lead us to go, oh my gosh, the world is falling apart, right? The end is before us. This is it, right? But Jesus has something to say about that that we're going to talk a little bit more through. In the 40 years following the death and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, we see that there will indeed be incredibly challenging days for the church. Now, we we consider what we are able to observe over the course of 2,000 years, and we see much of the same. Look with me at verse 14. Jesus says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation, terms that the disciples would have been familiar with, given their place in Old Testament prophecy, continuing on, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go back, nor enter his house to take anything out. Verse 16, And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So so what do we see in verses fourteen through sixteen? Well we see this emphasis on hardship. Right, we we see this emphasis on the hardship and the chaos of certain events as signs? Right? Signs and, and trials leading to the ultimate destruction of the temple. Because this is what Jesus is talking about. These are ideas that were introduced last week. That which can be, uh, which can be taken from passages like Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11 concerning the destruction of the temple in 167 BC. We're talking 150 years prior to what we see taking place in the coming days. Events that led God's people to essentially abandon the temple before successfully revolting and taking it back again in 40 AD. Jesus speaks of and towards the fulfillment here of Daniel's prophecy while pointing ahead. In verses 17 through 20, to events that had yet to take place. Look with me at verse 17. This is a challenging portion here. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray. That it may not happen in winter. For in those days, and so there's these days, and then there's those days, and in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. We see some challenging events that are presented in verses 14, 15, and 16. Events that God's people can reflect back on and go, man, we have seen days like these. In addition, we see the events of verse 19, which will, based on what Jesus has to say, exceed that which preceded them. And yet there is this emphasis in verse 20. Think about the details that Jesus includes in verses 17, 18, and 19. You see nursing women, right? Mothers. And this, and this hope that that which is to come doesn't take place when it's cold outside. Why? Well, because that is going to create an incredibly difficult and challenging situation and circumstance for those who are experiencing it. And yet there's an emphasis in verse 20. And the emphasis points towards the faithfulness of God and his remembrance of mercy. Listen to what we see here in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, then no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's this this emphasis on the difficulty that will persist, that God's people have experienced, and that which they will experience. And there's an emphasis in verse 20 on the shortening of days, this mercy from the Lord. I was reminded as I was reading through this portion of Scripture last week about what we see from the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, if you've never read through the book of Habakkuk, I would encourage you to. Because I think it informs greatly our understanding and our anticipation and our expectation of what it looks like to be God's people in a broken world. In Habakkuk, we see this prophet petition God in light of the judgment of the Lord at the hands of the Assyrians. And he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, this is his petition. This is his cry. Right, that we, there's this recognition that we are in a broken world, and that we are a rebellious people, and that there is this correction that is in need of being of being realized. Right, And the Lord says, this is the means by which I am going to accomplish that which has been spoken. I'm going to use the enemies of God's people to bring about judgment on God's people in light of their disobedience. And from the prophet Habakkuk comes this cry, in wrath, remember mercy, remember your people. Right? Remember your covenant, keep us, sustain us, cause endurance to be realized for us. We see in verse 20 that if it were not for the grace of the Lord, for the sake of the elect, that he, these days would not indeed be short, but that they would persist. That's the nature of our world. Persistent evil when left unto itself, Right? It's the nature. It's that which we see in the context of Mark chapter 13. It's what we'll see in the context of the book of Acts as we continue on through the remainder of the New Testament books. It is that which we will observe. We look back at the course of history since the the conclusion of the canon of Scripture, and what do we see? We see evil persisting. Evil will persist persist. But the Lord, in grace and in mercy, shortens those days. He remembers mercy, and he does so for the sake of his people. Look with me at verse 21. Things are crazy, right? For God's people. What is the response? If anyone says to you, Jesus says, Look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. What does he say? Don't believe it, right? Like, don't, don't, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But the encouragement, verse 23, be on guard. <clears throat> be on guard. Be aware. Be Be awake. Be persistent, because I've told you these things, right? I was reminded about what we see in the book of Exodus, right? As as Moses is, is sent back into Egypt to deliver his people. Right? And one of the first things that we see, Moses do upon making his way back into Egypt is to is to cast his staff, right? The staff onto the ground and it becomes a, a snake. And then we see these magicians, right? These these magicians perform this this same type of work. Now God has the final say because we have the serpent who eats the other serpents, which is like, again, super incredible, right? But but we reminded of what we see here, right? That there will be there will be signs, people will be saying things, but but Rest assured that the Christ has, has come. The Christ is here, and I am He. Right? And so when I when I leave, right, when I ascend and things get progressively more difficult for God's people, know that I've already come. The Christ has come. And you'll know all of these things because I'm telling them to you before him. You ought not be caught off guard. In fact, as they happen, what should it do for God's people? Well, perhaps produce some degree of confidence, right? Well, he said that it was going to be like this, right? He said that it was going to be challenging. He said that it was going to be difficult. And so let us not only say, man, let us not only not say, man, the world is coming to an end, right? But let us say that this speaks towards the validity and the authority and the assurance of God's word, of that which Christ has spoken beforehand. We see here that difficulty in the world will persist. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, Right? He's, he's assuring them that things will become challenging, that they will become difficult. And we can know, as God's people currently residing right, in 2018, that that which Jesus spoke of only continues to play itself out. It only continues to manifest itself through the evil of the human heart. Right? Cultures and 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 nations experiencing upheaval, right? Social injustice, rejection of the truth, and the exaltation of that which is of that which is to be undesirable, right? We we see it again and again experiencing and playing itself out among God's people. And so where is the encouragement? Man, look with me at verses 24 through 27. Here's the encouragement. Okay, where Jesus is painting this picture, right, of, of the difficulty that is, to, that is to come. And yet he says in verses 24 through 27, essentially take, take heart, right, that Christ will gather his people. The encouragement here is this. We talked last week about mission, right? And we talk about mission a lot because mission is a major theme throughout Mark's gospel which is wonderful because we need that so often, don't we? We need this encouragement toward mission. But we see this, this encouragement that, that the labor, the mission of the church is not in vain. Let me say that one more time. Through what we see over the course of these next few verses, we're going to see that the labor, that the mission of the church is not in vain. Right? That, that difficulty is coming. But know that that your endurance, verse 13, looking back at, at what we saw earlier, and that your persistence will not be in vain. Verse 24, in those days, Jesus says, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars, listen to this, listen to this scene. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. In verse 24 and 25, we see what could best be described as ultimate cosmic upheaval. <laughs> right? Powerful, right? It reminds us of what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and the, the power of creation and, and chaos, right, being brought together in, in form and in function. Ultimate cosmic upheaval, upheaval. And universal cataclysmic judgment signaling that the end has come. In heaven and on earth, the cosmos will be rocked and shaken as God prepares to come in judgment. And Christ's full and and final institution of the eternal kingdom. That which is here in part now will one day, upon the backdrop of incredible trial, come in its fullness. As evil will be judged and utopian relationship and utopian society is instituted as God's people. are brought back into this most unique fellowship with him. Those who have been experiencing fellowship and intimacy with God by way of His Spirit poured into us will now be there with Him. Enjoying all of the benefits of this divine relationship and bodies and world absent of sin and shame and death. Why? Well, because Christ is coming to judge He's coming to judge that. He's coming to make, as Tim Keller says, all sad things untrue. And the world and the relationship that he designed his people to dwell in with him and one another, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, will be brought back. Does that make sense? Do you understand what what we're seeing here? We continue on in verse 26. And then they will see, Jesus says, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Man, what an incredible scene, right? that so the glory that we are able to observe through the self sacrificial work of Christ upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins will one day be experienced again as he comes to judge evil. And to gather the saints, that's the picture that we see, verse 27. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right, there is this this fullness to that which God is to accomplish, right? That from every corner, from the four winds throughout creation, God's people will be gathered. How can he do this? This is an this is an incredible incredible a tedious amount of work for you and I to understand and to comprehend, right? To to gather everything. If you asked me to gather every sock in our house, I would have a really hard time doing that. <laughs> right? We're we're talking completeness, we're talking fullness, and yet we see this assurance that the elect, that God's people will be gathered together. That There is not a corner of creation in which God's people will be left unto themselves, but they will be brought together, right? That there will be this, this bringing together that takes place. We see in verses 26 and 27 a promise from Christ. Our dream is the return of our king. Our dream is the return of our king. Our desire, our heart's desire is the return of Christ. And we see Jesus tell his disciples in verses 26 and 27 that this hope, that this dream will one day become manifest. It will become a reality to which I tell you that I need this and you need this. Right? We need this promise. God's people need this promise. Why? Well, I'll give you a great illustration. This past week, I had a conversation with a, a really good friend of mine at Gallery Row who's becoming, a, who's becoming a better friend over the course of our conversation together. And we were comparing the Christian worldview and, and mission With that of the secularist because he's not a Christian, right? And so we're discussing and we're dialoguing Christian worldview and mission and that which the, the secularist, right, the skeptic, the unbeliever would have to say about a secular worldview and what we are living for and about, right? You guys following me so far? And the first thing that I'll say is this, that it was a very peaceful dialogue, which is incredibly helpful because I think in our hearts and in our minds sometimes we imagine engaging skeptics, right, and secularists with religious conversation and worldview conversation um, ultimately ends with like a Chinese leg wrestle going on right there in the middle of wherever you guys are gathering, right? I prefer the, the – the, the, maybe it's a Chinese arm wrestle, and it happens with legs, right? I prefer that one. I think it's neat. Let's bring it back. But what actually happens more often than not is that there's a really peaceful dialogue, right, that there's this exchange of ideas and there's this confidence from, from us, you and I, me, through by way of and in the conversation that Christ is working by way of the Spirit to soften the heart and soften the mind, right, and, and to make that which is currently rejected as, as, as false become understood and realized and embraced as eternal truth, and while we were engaged in this conversation, I described the Christian life as one in which a people redeemed by God pursue after him. Right, we pursue after him because he has sought us. And similar to what we see in, in this passage is as being gathered from the four winds, God's elect being brought together. Let us understand and let us realize that, that if we are in relationship with Christ today, it is because he has sought us, Right? He's redeemed us. He's bought us with his blood. That he's redeemed our hearts and that he's reconciled us in relationship to himself and one another. And so in response, we as a redeemed people pursue after him, pursuing holiness, desiring obedience, and pushing back the darkness to the glory and in the strength of Christ. And in what seems to be at times an endless task, given the fact that we know, based on the words of Jesus here, that things are and shall continue to be difficult until the return of Christ, we begin to have this dialogue about the challenge that that is for God's people. This realization that our world is rebellious, that we are in a natural state of rebellion in terms of our relationship with our creator. Nations have warred and they shall continue to war. Social injustice and famine will continue. Conflict within the family, unfortunately, because of the state of the human heart. Will persist, but the promise of Christ in verse 26 and 27 is that the Christian mission is not a fruitless one, right? But that it's, that it's actually good, and it's God glorifying that Christ, upon his return due to the faithfulness of God and the power of the gospel, the obedience of the church, will gather from the four corners of the world his elect, Right Christ amidst a trial and difficulty for his people remains committed to the rescue of sinners by grace through faith this is mark 13:27 right this is that this picture might become a reality this future reality we see infuses a hope into the church This future reality, the promise of verse 27, the gathering together of the elect, produces perseverance within God's people. Let's say it one one more way, okay, that this picture, Mark 13, verse 27, the gathering together by Christ, his elect from all corners of creation, results in perseverance and gospel proclamation. It has to. It has to result in this. Amazingly enough, God graciously fosters this global reality and he does so on a local level. Listen to this. This is the incredible thing about what we see in verse 27. In verse 27, we see this promise that God will gather together from the four corners his elect, his people. Now I want us to think about how this manifests itself on a local level that we might get a picture of that which God is to accomplish on a cosmic level one day. Every Sunday, every Sabbath, we come here, right, and we gather. And we do so from various corners of this community. Right, maybe you live on campus, right? Maybe you live back here in in Greek Village or even behind Greek Village. Maybe you live over by the square or perhaps out towards Whitesburg or maybe towards Rootville, right, right? We see locally this bringing together of God's people from, let's say, the four corners of this county, right? The four corners of this city, perhaps, right? And we get this picture, right, of what what God is to accomplish on a cosmic scale one day. There's a sense... This is why we put so much emphasis on the gathering together of the saints every Sunday, right? If you you go through the process of church membership here at Christ the King, one of the things that we say is that, hey, listen, we desire that we would gather together every Sunday, right? That That is where we are focused. That is our corporate gathering time together in which we are encouraged, right? And we worship Christ together, right? We express gratitude for the forgiveness of our sins, right? And this, this, this regeneration that takes place within our hearts. Where we proclaim praise and adoration to Christ. We respond in obedience to the proclamation of the word by slaying our sin and looking to him. We see accomplished in this, in this small community on a local level that which is to be accomplished on a, on a, on a global level. In the future. What encouragement. What encouragement here to see that the labor of the church in mission is not in vain. But we continue to, to support and send out missionaries through institutions like the North American Mission Board. Where where guys are going and they're planting churches in, in East St. Louis, right? Or in downtown Atlanta. In order to engage the nations, to do hard work, to reach people, to proclaim the gospel to the glory of Christ... And there's this confidence, based on what we see in Mark 13, 27, that that work, while hard, while difficult, while challenging, not even considering the nature, the human nature and condition that makes it all the more difficult, is not in vain, right? The labor of the church, the labor of the church is not not in vain. Christ will not allow it to be. Uh, right? Locally, we do not labor in vain, but we engage in gospel community and in gospel conversation confident. Confident. Hear that. Because I think one of the greatest things that oftentimes hinders our obedience in terms of gospel engagement within our community is, is, is fear by way of, of confidence in the gospel to do work. Right? What is it that that most challenges you? What is it that you're most afraid of in terms of living mission, in terms of engaging locally and globally? What is it that that terrifies you? Perhaps it's rejection, right? The fear of man. Perhaps it's, it's, it's failure to fully embrace the work of the gospel to do this work that we don't need to juggle chainsaws, right? Or do anything that is like ultra or super impressive. We don't need like eloquence, but we need faithfulness. We need obedience and we need confidence that the mission of the church does not fail. But that God works through the efforts of the church by way of his spirit to regenerate the human heart. We engage in mission in the temporal in the short term in this life confident that in this moment and time the eternal benefits are ensured right the success is certain so we engage are right? we engage in mission as Christ promises to gather together his elect The last thing that we can observe from this passage that we're going to talk about this morning, we obviously have not exhausted it, right? But the last thing that we'll look at together is in verses 28 through 36, in which we see this, that despite some uncertainty, these events are sure. Despite some uncertainty, these events are sure. Those concerning the difficulty in verses 5 through 23, looking back at where we we were, Uh, Earlier and last week, as well as the assured hope of our king's return in verses 24 through 36. Look with me at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, Jesus says. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Verse 29. So, also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, again, there's this contextual element that shapes the way that we understand these final statements of Jesus here. What question is Jesus answering? Well, the question is this, when will Jerusalem fall? And Jesus says that these events will be as clear as the fig leaf beginning to sprout, signaling the beginning of summer. And we've got a couple of tulip trees in our yard. And um, we can tell when warm weather's getting close because they go from being just like dead sticks with like these little buds that begin to open up on the ends, right? Warm weather's coming. We see here a similar illustration from Jesus. In the same way as the, as the fig tree right, begins to sprout leaves, in the same way as you observe certain events, you will know that the world, the words that I have spoken are, are true. Verse 30 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. Oh, goodness. But the words, my words, will not pass away. There's an emphasis here on the, on the trustworthiness of the word of Christ. And as a result, the fulfillment of the events and the condition of the world that he has spoken about. We begin transitioning into verses 32 through 36, and we see Jesus explicitly answering the disciples' second question concerning the accomplishing of these things, and implicitly his return. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And so their question, and Matthew does a really wonderful job of helping us understand the the sequence of the questions that are being presented Jesus goes and he says, listen, you want to know when I'm coming back? You want to know when all of these things will ultimately be accomplished? Well, no one knows. You want to know when I'm coming back? I don't know. That's what Jesus says. I don't know. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but who knows? The Father knows. Jesus says only the Father knows. Jesus says only the Father knows when I will return, which has Potential to lead us to ask a certain question. And that question is, is this. How is that possible? <laughs> right? How is that possible? If, if Christ is divine, then how can he not know the time of his return? And I think it's here that we see this emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Certain divine rights have been laid down by Jesus in eternity past in order to embrace the fullness of humanity incarnate and to substitute himself as a, as a suitable sacrifice, as the only suitable sacrifice in the place of his fallen people. And what we find, if this is true, is that verse 32 should not minimize our amazement of Christ, but it should indeed produce increase. Here's what I mean. One commentator said it like this, that Jesus both knows all things as God and doesn't know all things as man. Well, wait a second. That sounds really confusing, doesn't it? For the unique two-natured single person of Christ... Is no contradiction, but a peculiar glory of the God Man. Jesus took a human body to save our bodies, and He took a human mind to save our minds. And so, there's this sense in which, in the same way, we see gathered from the four corners, the four winds, God's elect, that there is the same, the same studiousness. Right, that there's the same thoroughness to the work of Christ within each human person, right? That, That we are our whole selves redeemed. Our bodies are redeemed by Christ. His incarnation makes that possible. Right, our minds are redeemed by Christ. His incarnation makes that possible. Without becoming man, in his emotions, he could not have rescued our hearts. Our hearts are rescued and redeemed by Christ due to the incarnation. And without taking a human will, he could not save our broken and wandering wills. Our wills, broken and wandering. Christ redeems them. He brings them back. Right? He, he, he reconciles this and he plants it within our heart this desire to live in obedience. In light of the glory of the gospel, in light of what he's done for us, there is this desired obedience that we now possess, right? There's this pursuit, this intentional pursuit of holiness that leads God's people all because of who Christ is and his taking on of our humanity and his redeeming our entire persons to set aside the things of this world and our sinful desires and passions and idols and to pursue after Christ, he makes that possible. He does that without the redemption of our entire human condition by way of the humanity of Christ embraced at the incarnation. Those things are not possible. That's what we see being said here. And so does it minimize Christ? No, not at all. But it encourages greater adoration for Christ when we understand that which he laid down in order that we might be lifted up out of our sins. And out of our death, and restored to life and life in Him. He became man in full so that He might save us in full. He is a truly marvelous Savior. In recent weeks, we've seen emphasized the deity of Christ. In Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 36, Jesus is teaching in the temple and he references Psalm 110 and the words of David. The Lord says to my Lord. And we said we see this recognition from David of the sovereign power of his descendant who would sit upon his throne forever. His son, who is simultaneously his son and his Lord. He is the son in that he is from his line, fulfilling the prophecy for the Messiah, as well as his senior in that he occupies a greater position. So why is this important? Why do we need to revisit that? Well, because he spent two weeks ago emphasizing his deity. And this week we see, by way of his answer to their question, his emphasizing of his humanity. This week we see the humanity of Jesus pointing towards Jesus' recognition of the importance for his disciples in this sense of all the scenes throughout all the ages to understand and grasp the importance of his coexistence. Without the deity of Christ, listen to this, this is a big statement, but this is one that we need to hear. Without the deity of Christ, the cross is of no benefit. And without the humanity of Christ and his familiarity with temptation and struggle, the cross is of no benefit. Right? That there has to be this coexistence that we must understand the person of Christ in order to adequately understand the work of Christ. Does that make sense? We need to understand his deity, and we need to understand his humanity so that we might better understand his his reconciliation. That we might better understand that which he has accomplished upon the cross. And there's a degree of of mystery (laughs) as to how all of this fits together. But there is none as it pertains to Christ's desired response from his followers. And this is where we'll close our time together. Look with me at verse 33. Christ says, Be on guard. Be on guard and keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the, the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, what does he say in verse 35 to his disciples? Stay awake, right? Stay, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, Least he comes suddenly and find you asleep. Christians are, and this is where we're going to begin closing our time together. Christians are a, a, a paradoxical people, and here's what I mean by that. We are a people who seem to exist in a degree of contradiction, only we don't. We are an active people. We're an active people in that we are pursuing holiness and we are living mission assured of its success, as we've seen already this morning, as well as a waiting people. We're an active people and we are a waiting people. That seems to contradict itself, doesn't it? But I don't think that it does we're active in that we're pursuing holiness, we're living mission, and we're waiting in that we are looking forward with eager anticipation to the return of our king, to establish his kingdom, finally and forever. That which is evil is is judged, the saints are gathered, and there is an end to our sanctification. We finally find our way out of the rock tumbler, Right? And a beginning to glorification. Now, right now, we're living in this gap. Right? We're, we're, we're living in this gap and we don't know when the end comes. We, we can't tell from our perspective or from this, this passage. And yet there's this encouragement to, to actively wait. Right? To, to, to actively wait, to not fall asleep, but to be prepared, whether that be at, at morning or, or midnight when the rooster crows. Be alert, be ready, be prepared. And so how do we live in this active waiting? Here's what we do. And if you take notes, this would be a, a, a solid thing for you to write down. Okay, We do ordinary things with gospel intentionality. We do ordinary things with with gospel intentionality to the glory of Christ. We we love God in response to his love and call of us. And we love people. And you say, wait a second, that sounds a lot like what we heard a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 12. Imagine that. This stuff all relates together. We we live self-sacrificially. Not as a means of righteousness, but because we have been made righteous in Christ, all in response to the hope of the resurrection and the promised return of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we see the after effects of Christ's ascension to the Father. And it says this beginning in verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, I know, I don't know about you, but I know historically I focused a lot on, uh, on Christ's ascension and not a whole lot on the response of the disciples. And yet we see here in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, this emphasis on their response. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We're an active, waiting people, anticipating the return of our king. And while the difficulty highlighted by Jesus speaks specifically towards the years following his resurrection and ascension, we, as we have already said, can rest assured that given the corrupt human nature, this will persist. And so we say, have I, am I, leaning into Christ have I and, and am I leaning into Christ for comfort and joy in difficulty? Am I, am I driven to faithfulness by God and a gospel-inspired, spirit-enabled <coughs> obedience to mission? Those are a handful of ways that we respond to what we saw this morning. We lean in, right? We lean in to Christ and we, and we trust him. Even though we don't know what the future looks like in terms of the second advent of our king, we do know that until that point that there is likely to be much difficulty. And so are we leaning into our king? Are we leaning in and are we trusting our our king? And in light of this realization of what he has accomplished for us upon the cross to redeem us and rescue us from the wrath of God, are we seeking... Holies. Are we living with a gospel-inspired desire for obedience, specifically as it pertains to this passage and mission? Confident that there is a day in which God's elect will be gathered. Our mission is not in vain, and we do not go alone, right? But we go empowered by the Spirit of God who enables us for this incredible, incredible work. And so let's lean in with the rest of our time. together.